On this week's edition of New York Now, a major reopening is coming to New York this month. That's from Governor Cuomo. We'll have details. Then, Karen DeWitt from New York State Public Radio and Marina Villeneuve from the AP have analysis on this week's news. And later, Senate Mental Health Chair Sandra Brook joins us to discuss 988, a 911-style number, but for mental health emergencies. Plus, reporter Daryl Camp takes us to a public housing complex in Albany, long plagued by environmental pollution, and we'll find out what some want to do about it. I'm Dan Clark, and this is New York Now. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. A major reopening of New York State is coming later this month. That's according to Governor Cuomo this week. Starting May 19th, the state will lift capacity restrictions at most businesses, like stores, gyms, hair salons, and other places. But people will still have to distance at least six feet at those places, so it's not totally back to normal. And all of this is a result of some pretty good news when it comes to COVID. At the start of this year, New York had a COVID-19 positivity rate of more than 8%. That's now down to less than 2% on most days. And hospitalizations have gone from close to 9,000 in January to less than 3,000 now. At the same time, about half of all New Yorkers have now received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. So the news is good. And Governor Cuomo said this week that he wants to seize on this moment and create a sort of New York renaissance. We think there's a moment of opportunity here and we're going to build a totally different New York. We're going to reimagine it. We're going to renew it. It's going to be a New York that never existed before. And we're going to take this moment of reset internationally and we're going to use it to our competitive advantage. Of course, Governor Cuomo is also facing multiple investigations over sexual harassment, the state's handling of nursing homes, and a lot more. So things are very complicated and way more complicated than they sound. Let's break it all down with this week's panel. Karen DeWitt is from New York State Public Radio. Hey. Marina Villeneuve is from the Associated Press. Thank you both for being here. You're welcome. So let's start with the reopening. I want to go to you first, Marina, about the reopening. It's scheduled for May 19th, and we're looking at capacity lifting. What's been the reaction to that? Yeah, the governor uh, in the past couple days he's been announcing that you know the subway is going to come back to 24-hour op seven operation um and he's also said that you know the yankees and mets are going to be offering free vaccinations if you um go to a game uh free tickets if you get vaccinated at a game um, but there's been a lot of questions about sort of the substance about a lot of these reopening plans um, he's said that um, it could be easier maybe for even some businesses perhaps to reopen if they only allow vaccinated people in but is that legal been... i don't really understand that that's a question that i have about that yeah that is a that is a big question and the governor kind of answered that the yankees games because someone asked well if you're unvaccinated, you have to sit in a, a seat where you're separated from people. And he said, well, there's no law that says you have to sit next to somebody. But mm. offices, yeah, you could see that becoming a legal challenge at and some point. It's all, you know, it's all navigating. I think what's surprising, though, is that how quickly the governor seemed to change his mind on this. That's what I thought, too. It, I didn't expect him to come out on Monday and say, 
by the way, we're going to have a major reopening in about three weeks. Well, just a few days before that, Mayor Bill de Blasio made a big deal about saying how New York City was going to open July 1st. In fact, he announced it on MSNBC's Morning Joe, the favorite show of liberal Democrats. And Cuomo said, well, I think that's very irresponsible. You can't get overconfident. But over the weekend, something changed. And, you know, when decisions are made like this, you, you got to wonder, how much is it really based on science here, or right. in the governor's case, you know, he really needs some good headlines. In fact, I realized this week, and crossing my fingers that it doesn't change, we're, we're taping this Friday morning, has been the first week that he has not gotten any really devastating headlines, negative news stories, or events since late January. So, because everyone is still talking about, it's great, New York's reopening. Yeah, and just like one little, just one point on when the governor was talking about how, um, businesses no longer have to have these capacity restrictions. There's a lot of questions about the new rule, which is just going to be based on um, if you have enough space for social distancing. And it's kind of unclear if it's going to make that big of a difference. Yeah, because really. for restaurants, they still have to have tables six feet apart. And especially a New York City restaurant, which I remember in the before days, you know, you're shoulder to shoulder with people. They're not going to be able to open 100% capacity if they have to have tables six feet apart. And also, how does the public feel? If some people are vaccinated, do they want to go in a place if they know maybe other people aren't and I'm next to them? So it's a lot of questions. Right. And I think he was kind of indicating that there was going to be a phased reopening of some sort and in conjunction with Connecticut and New Jersey, which he said we did with the close down, which isn't totally true. So I guess we'll have to see if after May 19th, what the timeline looks like after that. But Karen, I think you make a great point. I'm really curious about the science behind this. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if Democrats in the legislature are also thinking about the science behind it. Because as we know, they have the power now to change his directives a lot more freely than they did before. I guess. But I think politically, nobody can go backwards and close things yes. down unless the, the, the rate of infection spikes. And we should mention that it is coming down. It's the lowest it's been since late October before the holiday surge although the vaccination rate is slowing, hence all these incentives. Um, I, there's one locally, Albany, at the Crossgates Mall, a state vaccination center, and I guess you get free coupons to go shopping afterwards uh, if you'll show up and get a Why couldn't that happen when I was getting my vaccine? Okay, all right, I'm trying not to go there either about that. You know, why did I go, why did I try to get one so early? Yeah. I could have got free baseball tickets. I know. <laughs> Speaking of politics, uh, we have a very big national story out right here in New York, which is always not, never a surprise, really. Uh, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik is making a play for the conference chair of, of the House and the GOP. Um, she is challenging Liz Cheney, who is not a favor of the Republican Party right now. Karen, what's going on here? Because this was out of the blue for me. I didn't realize that she was moving towards this. I guess yeah. we, we all, I think, know that Elise Stefanik has higher ambitions. Right. But I didn't quite think it was going to take this path and so quickly. Well, she's probably gonna, going to get it, too. Right. Um, because uh, Liz Cheney is very unpopular because she's going against President Trump. You know, a, a lot of us, I think viewers of this show, most people think, the country's moved on from Trump. We don't see him. He's banned from social media. But within the Republican Party, he's a powerful figure. And you really need to say what he currently believes in order to get ahead. And Elise Stefanik has really signed on with Trump ever since the impeachment, which seems like a long time ago, way back, the first impeachment, way back in the fall of, of 2019. 
So um, she was somebody who, she didn't go to the 2016 Republican convention, she wouldn't mention Trump's name, and something changed for her in uh, like about 2018, 2019 when she saw Trump's power, I guess, and decided, you know, I better get on board, he may be a way for me to get ahead. And we're kind of seeing that play out now. Right, it's really interesting with her because when she was elected, she was really considered to be a middle-of-the-road moderate Republican from the North Country. This is a district that was once represented by Bill Owens, a Democrat, and I think that everybody expected her, given her age, that she was going to be really like more of a John Katko-style politician. In recent years, as you mentioned, though, she's really, really gotten behind the former president and his supporters. And I, I don't really know the reason for that. And I'd be curious to know where that shift happened because uh, Politico reported uh, either yesterday, sometime this week, Karen, you sent me the story, okay. that part of the president's, the former pre president's base actually does not like her because that of how moderate she was before. Yep, and her track record in Congress is, according to them, worse than Liz Cheney's even. She's voted against the, the president, but... Uh... But yeah, it's very interesting. And will this, you know, political ideology last her lifetime being a young person? I, I mean, frankly, you can see maybe older people who are, you know, believe in the certain things that Trump does, but I don't know how her future is. But you know what? She'll probably figure something out, it seems like. She's been pretty smart nav navigating that. And I would add that she won her seat back in 2020 in a year where, you know, Trump obviously lost nationally. So she, I, I guess she knew what she was doing in terms of her district. Right, I'm curious as to where she'll end up. I, I could see a House Speaker, Elise Stefanik, at some point. She did work for Paul Ryan for a little bit before she was uh, in Congress. So I think she might have those ambitions. So yeah. I guess we'll have to see. She keeps talking about Nancy Pelosi needs to be replaced. <laughs> I think she, she says Nancy Pelosi needs to be fired. Well, that's true, but maybe she's saying. <laughs> Yeah, I can take that job. <laughs> yeah, and definitely over the last year, she's become really outspoken when it comes to um, New York's handling of nursing home outbreaks, and she's also been trying to increase female um, the number of female Republicans who are elected as well, and that's been a sort of focus for her. And she's also come out as kind of a national leader against the governor, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Well, she seems to have dropped off on that recently, but she was just trolling him on social media. He's the worst governor in America, and she does seem to have eased off on that because she was mentioned as a potential candidate for governor. I'm thinking she gets this job not. No. This, this is a better job. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Marina, we have about 30 seconds left. Anything interesting coming up in the legislature? I think one bill that's going to be working um, its way through the legislature is a bill to um, tweak this law that passed to make it easier for people to visit loved ones in nursing homes. There is a lot of concern from nursing homes about that law conflicting with federal law. So mm -hmm. it looks like it's gonna, that law is gonna be rolled back. So um, uh, even if there's like another pandemic or another surge, um, these personal caregivers um, aren't necessarily going to be able to go visit their loved ones in nursing homes. All right. Well, that's a bill that we will be watching. Marina Villeneuve from the AP, Karen DeWitt from New York State Public Radio. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Moving on now to a story about environmental justice. It's a story we hear all too often. People of color in New York and across the country often bear the brunt of environmental problems like pollution and noise just because of where they live. And it's not always as easy as picking up and moving somewhere else. For many, that's just not an option. Reporter Daryl Camp takes us to a neighborhood in Albany that's been plagued by pollution and with no end in sight. It's not uncommon for urban neighborhoods in New York State to bear the brunt of environmental problems, and New York's capital region is no exception. 
Just blocks away from the state capital is the Port of Albany, an area known for its industrial activity with heavy truck traffic, freight trains, and noise. And right next to it is a small public housing complex called the Ezra Prentice Homes. The complex was built more than 50 years ago when the construction of the iconic Empire State Plaza forced the relocation of many families. Environmentalist Aaron Mayer, a former national president of the Sierra Club, says that it was clear at the time where people of color would end up compared to their white counterparts. So we go back to the entire dislocation of the community around the Empire State Plaza. The very poor African-American community that lived in that very hood, this is why Ezra Parentis exists. They actually built this place as a relocation of blacks in the wake of the building of the Empire State Plaza. The potential danger of living in an industrial area is not a new issue. For years, residents have voiced concerns about the potential dangers of a freight train derailment right next to their homes. According to Aaron Mayer, the public housing community should never have been placed in an industrial part of the city, and he's not alone on that. Basil Segos is the commissioner of the State Department of Environmental Conservation. I mean, this is a legacy uh, environmental racism uh, textbook example of it, where you're putting a housing authority, uh, a housing complex right next to an industrial area. Uh, can they coexist? I think that remains to be seen. The DEC launched an air quality study at Ezra Prentice more than three years ago. A base was set up in one of the parking lots and residents with backpacks would gather data. The results showed that trains that run just feet away from the homes actually were not the main contributor of pollution. Here's Segos again. But was the street that literally went right through uh, Ezra Prentice homes uh, and was subject to an enormous amount of truck traffic. That enabled us to, to use science to fix a policy problem. A big change came from forcing trucks to take a different route away from the area. But on an average day, you can still find a number of large vehicles driving through, even if it is less frequent than in past years. And it's not just the pollution from those vehicles that bothers tenants. Residents say that traffic can be dangerous for children who have to cross the street to get to a nearby park, and that sometimes it feels like the people who live at Ezra Prentice are forgotten. Taria Alston is the vice president of the Tenants Association at the development. So health effects wise with the air pollution and the trucks traveling back and forth, I feel like um, over time health issues as far as like cancer, asthma and things like that, the noise issue is um, could cause like psychological, you know, issues like that. I feel like more can be done and I feel like change is realistic. With no end in sight for the problems that face residents at Ezra Prentice, some want to wipe the slate clean and start over. One proposal would move the complex and its residents to a different part of the city. But Alston says that even if moving costs were covered for the tenants, relocating the development is more complicated than it sounds. It's mixed reviews from the residents. Down here, um, it's fairly peaceful. You have had some issues, but it's fairly peaceful. It's very kid-friendly. So a lot of people do not want to move from down here because of that and because of the amenities that, um, you know, this complex provides. However, there are some people that has strongly expressed that they would like to move. Whether people live there or not, Segos, the DEC commissioner, says the air quality in the area should still be improved. The uh, incredible amount of investment that's going into the port, the new rules coming into effect that we will put into place here at DEC after the Climate Act is 
is fully fulfilled. The work at the federal level now underway with, with President Biden. Uh, all of that will result in less emissions from transportation. And frankly, we're never going to hit our climate goals unless we reduce emissions from, from, uh, from transportation. That will have an immediate benefit for anyone that's working or living near these types of facilities. Environmentalist Aaron Mayer doesn't see another option for the health and well-being of those tenants than moving them to an area where air pollution and industrial activity won't affect their lives in such a big way. I judge people not so much by the heroic actions that they may do in an instant. I judge it by the outcome and the results. If at the end of the day, the end result is that these people are still stuck here, all I can say is they failed. Government has failed these people. While discussions on the future of Ezra Prentice continue, the state announced the new $300 million project earlier this year to build wind turbines at the Port of Albany, which could translate to jobs for area residents. In the meantime, the state says it's still focused on making conditions safer and healthier for those who live there. So, Daryl, is there any guarantee that those jobs will actually go to the residents at Ezra Prentice? Absolutely not. So. The project is a function of the fact that the Port of Albany is an industrial part of the city. It's not actually a result of the demands of the residents. So they're trying to sort of retrofit the project to meet the needs of the existing community. And actually, John McDonald, the assemblyman who represents that area, did address that when I talked to him about it. Now, the idea is if you locate the apprenticeship within the program and we partner with community organizations to really go out and, and recruit people to be a part of it, it's a step in the right direction. There's no guarantee, as you know, with anything. At the end of the day, the human spirit has to be motivated to participate. So we will have to wait and see if the state actually follows through on that and if it's actually successful. Thanks for that report, Daryl. So we talk a lot on the show about access to mental health care in New York, and there's a lot to that conversation, like how to treat people experiencing a mental health crisis. Right now, the only option for a lot of people in crisis is to either wait it out or get a visit from the police, and sometimes that can make things worse. But there's now a new idea in the works to set up a hotline for mental health emergencies, kind of like 911, but for mental health. And that would come with a whole new infrastructure that could really take law enforcement out of the situation altogether. For more on that, I spoke this week with Senate Mental Health Chair Samra Brook. Senator Samra Brook, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Of course. So you want to do something, it's a unique idea. It's basically a three digit number that people could call when they're experiencing a mental health crisis. Kind of similar, think of 911, but this would be 988. So let's start with, tell me what kind of calls would be going into this number if it happens? Are these just strictly mental health emergencies? Are these just people looking for help? Who would it cover? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that the way you laid it out there is correct. Right now, we have really overburdened the 911 system with essentially anytime someone has anything remotely urgent or sort of emergency situations. So the real idea behind 988 is that we want this parallel system. Uh, so you've got your 911 system for medical or fire or police emergencies, and we want that same thing, 988, for any sort of mental health 
um, or substance abuse emergencies. And so what I might liken it to is, you know, right now we have this national suicide prevention lifeline where if someone is feeling suicidal or they're feeling like they're in some sort of crisis, they can call it, but it's this long 1-800 number. And so the point of 988, especially here in New York State, is that it's an easy to remember number that if you are having those suicidal thoughts or perhaps you're feeling just in a moment of crisis and you know that some you need help. Um, that's a number that you can call that you'll actually be able to get paired with trained mental health counselors and providers to help you get what we would call this kind of red hot moment of crisis to a cool moment where you're able to move on with your day and or get the services that you need to get better. So is it just the people that you would be calling on the line? Is it just those trained counselors or is there an opportunity for first responders to become involved as well? Definitely. So right now, and to just uh, move backwards for a moment, this is all part of a federal act that was signed into a law last October. And the federal act said that every state needed to adopt this 988 number and that the 988 number had to go towards this uh, suicide prevention line so that in every state, folks had something, someone to call somewhere to call for a mental health crisis or substance abuse crisis. So not only will there be trained counselors answering these calls as there is now with the National uh, Suicide Prevention Lifeline, but we're also looking to make investments in what we call mobile crisis teams, which do become these first responders to be able to answer a call where perhaps someone does need someone to come to them and help them with whatever it is that they're going through. But the key is right now, there is no emergency line um, statewide for someone to call when they're in a crisis like that. So the first step would be making sure that we get this 988 infrastructure set up and that we have people to manage and answer these calls. So uh, since it's part of a federal program, is the federal government funding it or does the state have to come up with the money? I guess, how would this be funded? Because I know that counties often have concerns about uh, what they call unfunded mandates from the state where they have to provide a service, but not necessarily the funding to do it. Yeah, so the whole point of actually having this this act where the states themselves are responsible for setting up 988 is that we really are going to run it just like the 911 program. And I do want to dig in that for a moment because I think it's really important to outline that we have substantially uh, withheld funding, uh, decreased funding to a lot of mental health services over the past several decades in this state, but then also on a federal level as well. We have simply you know, missed the mark of understanding that mental health care is health care, that mental health is just as important as physical health. So what 988 does is it creates that entire infrastructure, and we plan on funding it similar to how we fund 911, um, where it's a small amount that most of us probably don't notice that pays for 911, um, and we'll use a similar amount on um, uh, wireless carriers, or sorry, folks with uh, wireless phones. And it'll be just like the 911, but this is be the 988 trust fund that actually gets used for managing the 988, building the infrastructure, making sure we have people to answer those calls here in New York State. So it seems like this really complements a part of the state budget, which set up what's called crisis stabilization centers, which are essentially these facilities that people would be able to go to if they're experiencing a mental health crisis or a substance use crisis. 
how do you think they'll work together? Do we see these mobile response teams going to people and bringing them to these stabilization centers? And on that note, do we see law enforcement kind of being removed from that equation? Well, yes, so there, there's a lot to answer there. And I think it's, it's absolutely right. When, you know, if we step back a, a step, and we talked a lot about this when we passed the budget, um, specifically the mental health budget that I, that I oversaw, and we really started talking more about how are we going to tackle this challenge. And I think it's important to understand that there was already, you know, a mental health crisis here in New York State. COVID-19 pandemic, the isolation, the anxiety, the depression that came with it, the removal of your normal routines, especially for young folks, has all exacerbated the mental health crisis in this state. So the crisis stabilization centers, I would akin to something like an urgent care, but for mental health. So, um, so the New York state budget does allow for now the study of crisis stabilization centers and really putting together a plan for what that could look like across the state. It will look different, for example, if you live in Brooklyn than if you live up here in Rochester or in perhaps some of the rural areas of New York state. And that's exactly what we're working with OMH to do now is really figure out what does this crisis stabilization center model look like and how can we learn from centers that exist today? For example, there's one in Dutchess County that operates. It allows for detoxification if necessary. It allows for a place for someone to go who might be in crisis. And what it does is it gives them care as opposed to meeting them with any sort of punitive and violent measures, which as we've seen has happened time and again when someone is in a mental health crisis and is met with law enforcement versus the type of mental health providers that they need. All right, we'll keep an eye on it. Senate Mental Health Chair Samra Brook, thank you so much. Thank you. If you or anyone you know is experiencing a mental health crisis, there are resources available. We'll put some information up on our website. That's at nynow.org. But until then, thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well.